This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. So greetings and welcome to the Clinician to Clinician podcast. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Joining me today is Dr. Aparna Swaminathan, who is a medical instructor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care in the Department of Medicine at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Swaminathan co-authored a review in the Annals ATS entitled Overview and Challenges of Bronchiolar Disorders, which will be the topic of discussion today. Welcome and thanks, Dr. Swaminathan, for being a guest on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Great. So I must say that I'm, I'm really glad that you and your colleagues wrote this review. Uh, bronchiolar disorders are, are certainly interesting and challenging both in their diagnosis and treatment. And, and certainly among my biggest challenges are keeping up with the nomenclature and the classifications and keeping those straight. So uh, just reading your, your review is particularly helpful and I think uh, our listeners will find it um, helpful as well. So uh, let's just get started. As I mentioned, there, there is some confusion about the nomenclature and classification of these disorders. So why don't we start with a question that, that really focuses on what the primary bronchiolar disorders are? That is a, it's a great question. I think one reason the nomenclature can be so confusing is because bronchioles can be involved in processes that either primarily affect the larger, more proximal airways or the more distal parenchyma. So we think of primary bronchiolar disorders as diseases where that, path, that pathologic process is really mainly limited to the bronchioles. So the primary bronchiolar disorders include either bronchiolitis obliterans, follicular bronchiolitis, respiratory bronchiolitis, acute bronchiolitis, diffuse aspiration bronchiolitis, and diffuse panbronchiolitis. And we'll be focusing on, on those individually. But, but uh, again, I wanted to give a our listeners a sense that we're going to be focusing on a specific number of, of disorders uh, that have uh, some some particular pathogenesis and pre- presentation in common. So again, one of the one of the confusing issues is the word or the use of the word bronchiolitis, and we use bronchiolitis to describe many different conditions. So as far as you're concerned, what is the proper definition of bronchiolitis when you're talking about these kinds of disorders? The term bronchiolitis really refers to that that range of disorders that are characterized by inflammation or fibrosis of the bronchioles, which are the small airways of the lung. Um, By definition, they're usually less than two millimeters in diameter and they lack cartilage in the wall. And and what, is there a specific pathologic finding that unites bronchiolitis? So the pathologic finding would be either inflammation or fibrosis in the bronchioles, but then the type of the specific pathologic patterns could vary among those different specific disorders. Got it. Okay. So from a clinical standpoint, is there a typical presentation uh, for these groups of bronchiolar disorders? Well, patients usually present with otherwise unexplained progressive dyspnea and cough, usually over a period of weeks to months. Um, but this is a pretty nonspecific symptom constellation, and the physiologic testing can actually be normal. So I think it's really important to, to remember to consider this entity when thinking about unexplained dyspnea and cough. Also, with regards to clinical presentation, the clinical context and predisposing factors, I think, is important to consider, such as inhalational exposures or connective tissue diseases or, or GERD or, or things that may predispose to some of these specific bronchiolar disorders that we're going to get into. 
Okay. And you mentioned physiology. So what, what's the most common finding or abnormality on pulmonary function testing? Well, I think a common misconception is that obstruction is always present on pulmonary function testing. And really, this isn't true. Um, the most common finding on PFTs in many case series of bronchiolitis obliterans and other bronchiolar disorders were actually normal PFTs. Um, another case series that looked at symptomatic bronchiolitis obliterans in soldiers, the most common PFT finding was an isolated decrease in DLCO. So while certainly obstruction can be seen in PFTs, a variety of other patterns can be seen too, including normal, like we mentioned, or restriction, or a mixed obstructive and restrictive pattern, or even just isolated air trapping. So for a long time, um, certainly even going back to my training, the, the FES 2575, the predicted force expiratory flow between 25 and 75% of the vital capacity has always been described as being potentially more reproducible and sensitive to the presence of, of diseases of the small airway than the FEV1. Is that true? Is the FEV2575 really of any uh, important utility in these disorders? That's a good question. Um, yeah, so it, it is often clinically used as this sensitive index of small airway pathology, but based on our review of the literature, we really couldn't find that it added information beyond the traditionally measured spirometric indices like FEV1 or FVC or the FEV1 to FVC ratio. It could be because, because the FEF2575 is dependent on vital capacity, the changes in the FVC really affect the portion of the flow volume curve examined. And so it really needs to be adjusted for lung volume and also um, could be related to the quality of the FVC maneuver, which may be why in the literature it doesn't pan out as much as being reliably indicative of small airway pathology. That's actually very helpful. So I'll uh, I'll put that I'll put that on my list of things that not to place uh, you know a specific amount of importance on when looking at these disorders. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that obviously the clinical presentation, physiology, and and then obviously chest imaging uh, becomes very important. So what are the most important findings that we should look for on, on high-resolution CT scans of the chest? The three most important things to look for on high-resolution CT scanning are bronchial wall thickening, central lobular nodules, and air trapping. So air trapping manifests as patchy areas of decreased attenuation on inspiration that remain hypoattenuated at end expiration. And air trapping is particularly characteristic in bronchiolitis obliterans, though other types of bronchiolitis can certainly have air trapping, and so can other um, diseases that also involve the bronchial, such as asthma. Uh, the central lobular nodules, which are not typically present in bronchiolitis obliterans, but can be seen in other types of bronchiolar disorders, mm -hmm. they can, they're either solid or ground glass. So solid central lobular, central lobular nodules are more common in acute infectious and aspiration bronchiolitis. And they often have these linear branching opacities that are related to bronchiolar luminal impaction that give it this tree and bud appearance. Um, whereas ground glass central lobular nodules are most frequently seen in respiratory bronchiolitis. Okay. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the tough stuff, I think. You did a really nice job. Uh, really going through the histologic types. Um, so I was wondering if we can discuss three specific um, entities that you that you outlined. One is cellular bronchi uh, bronchiolitis. The second is proliferative bronchiolitis. And the third in contradistinction is, is constrictive 
bronchiolitis. So can we take that from the top? So we'll start with cellular bronchiectasis. Yes. Uh, the term cellular bronchiolitis is really nonspecific and describes inflammatory infiltrates in the bronchioles. So there are many conditions that have features of cellular bronchiolitis on pathology. And usually we distinguish between them by adding other modifiers to the word cellular. So for example, um, acute bronchiolitis suggests the presence of acute inflammatory cells such as neutrophils, whereas chronic bronchiolitis describes more chronic inflammation like lymphocytes and plasma cells. Sometimes we add the word necrotizing to cellular bronchiolitis if, if because of infection um, where necrosis can be seen or Follicular is another modifier that can be added if germinal center hyperplasia is seen. So it sounds like cellular bronchiolitis is really a descriptive term um, rather than being a hallmark of a specific disorder. Is that true? Yes, completely. Okay. All right. Well, then how about proliferative bronchiolitis? Proliferative bronchiolitis uh, describes this pathologic pattern that's characterized by these rounded polypoid plugs of granulation tissue that forms in these small airways and includes the airway from within the lumen. The plugs almost always extend into the alveolar spaces and, and so the pattern is now often just called organizing pneumonia. The pattern is a common tissue reaction to a variety of insults and, and is seen in association with a lot of different pulmonary disorders. And so again, to be simple-minded about this, so proliferative bronchiolitis is a histologic pattern but it really is specific for organizing pneumonia related to, for example, exposures, but also to cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, correct? Yes, exactly. Okay, and last, and again, this is, this is where it gets confusing, constrictive bronchiolitis, so what is that? And what's different about that from proliferative bronchiolitis, for example? So instead of, prol instead of uh, proliferative bronchiolitis where there's these intraluminal plugs, in constrictive bronchiolitis, the luminal narrowing is caused by extrinsic compression okay. by this fibroinflammatory process. So something, um, something kind of compressing from the outside in as opposed to the inside out, which is proliferative bronchiolitis. And this is really a pure bronchiolar lesion. So it does not have any organizing pneumonia component to okay. it. So this is, so again, is it fair to equate constrictive bronchiolitis with bronchiolitis obliterans, which is a term in an in a entity we're going to discuss in more detail. Is that a fair uh, oversimplification of this? Constrictive bronchiolitis equals bronchiolitis obliterans? Yes. Yes, they're used synonymously. Okay. Uh, one of the things I found interesting, uh, among a lot of things I found interesting about your review, is you talked a little bit about the pathogenetic mechanisms that lead to bronchiolitis obliterans. Can you share those with us briefly? That's a great question. And we really still are trying to precisely understand the pathogenetic mechanisms. The fact that so many diverse medical conditions and exposures can lead to bronchiolitis obliterans really suggests that it is the final common pathway or could be the final common pathway of bronchiolar response to injury. And you know, we're learning more and more about that maybe having some inciting airway epithelial injury that then causes an activation of an immune response and dysregulated airway repair, causing airway remodeling is mm -hmm. this general concept of what causes bronchiolitis obliterans. And actually speaking of that, uh, so obviously the last few years have brought us, uh, you know, a lot of papers about, about bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome or BOS um, in a variety of different clinical settings. So what is BOS and what are the diagnostic criteria um, uh, for our audience to, uh, to get a little more sophisticated about? 
bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, or BOS, describes this clinical syndrome of irreversible progressive airway dysfunction. The term was first used in lung transplant recipients to describe that clinical syndrome that correlated with that pathologic finding of constrictive bronchiolitis or bronchiolitis obliterans that we okay. mentioned. And, um, and really since that the fibrosis in this condition, the small airway fibrosis is so patchy and often missed on transbronchial lung biopsy, the clinical syndrome was, was developed in lieu of trying to obtain a formal pathologic diagnosis. Um, and the term was then subsequently adopted in hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients as well. So the, in terms of criteria, in both lung transplant recipients and hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients, the criteria include airflow obstruction, which is defined by an FEV1 to FVC ratio less than 70%, and a persistent decline in FEV1 in the absence of infection or, or other confounding conditions that could be causing that. In lung transplant recipients, the, in the current criteria, the FEV1 must have declined by at least 20% from post-transplant baseline. Okay. And in hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients, the FEV1 is less than 75% predicted, with at least a 10% decline over the past two years. And also in hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients, really that there should have been either a pre-existing diagnosis of chronic graft-versus-host disease or evidence of air trapping on imaging or PFTs to meet the criteria for BOSS. Uh, so those are two, I think, pretty well-defined um, entities that are commonly encountered in clinical practice. And certainly, depending on where you work, if you work at a lung transplant center, this is the kind of BOSS that you're going to see. But, but uh, again, what we've seen in our clinical practice and what you very nicely reviewed in your paper were, was that other conditions, and certainly intellectual exposures, can cause bronchiolitis obliterans as well. So I would ask you to specifically highlight um, autoimmune disorders, and really what I think is very topical is, is the connection of diacetyl and its connection to vaping, which has obviously been very topical recently. So can you, can you summarize that for us? Definitely. Um, so in terms of autoimmune disorders, bronchiolitis obliterans seems best characterized in rheumatoid arthritis, but really has been associated with lupus, Sjogren's syndromes, and Crohn's disease, among other autoimmune disorders. And based on case series of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, it seems like bronchiolitis obliterans occurs in middle-aged women who've had RA for, for quite some time, usually at least 10 years. Um, the initial case reports that described it described a really fulminant course, but more recent case series have shown that the disease can actually be quite insidious. Uh, probably we're detecting more people with bronchiolitis obliterans with detecting more subclinical disease with high-res chest CT, and that's why the disease is looking more and more insidious in more recent case series. And that actually mimics my own clinical experience. Not that my, my, my clinical panel of these patients is big, but, but early on, my understanding and my early clinical experience was that this was relentlessly progressive and, and, and very difficult to treat. But I've seen at least two patients uh, more recently that have had, as you said, a very insidious and, and really a, a course that, that um, has actually been marked by relative stability over, over several years. So um, I, think, uh, I think that's mimicked, my, my, again, my clinical experience. Um, so how about, how about the, the, the issue of diacetyl and, and vaping? That's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. So, so diacetyl is a chemical used in the manufacture of 
food flavorings. And bronchiolitis and bronchiolitis obliterans was associated in, first really identified in popcorn factory workers, Mm -hmm. particularly among individuals with high levels of diacetyl exposure, and then has now subsequently been linked to other settings, especially other flavoring manufacturing settings and and coffee production. Um, And with regards to e-cigarettes, diacetyl is actually present in over 90% of flavored electronic cigarettes. Though it's really still not clear if the doses and exposures from vaping could lead to bronchiolitis obliterans. Uh, it hasn't seemed, bronchiolitis obliterans per se hasn't really played a role in, in this epidemic of vaping associated lung injury, which really has more of an acute lung injury pattern on histopathology, uh, albeit with some airway centricity. Do you anticipate that, or would you, would you hypothesize that continued exposure uh, over time for people who continue to, to, to vape, uh, that um, it would lead to, to what we now recognize as bronchiolitis obliterans, a more chronic, um, a more chronic condition? I think it certainly could. Um, I think it certainly could. I, you know, there's been some of the preclinical studies have shown that the amount of acetyl in electronic cigarettes is, is toxic and changes the, the transcriptome. So, so I, I think it's a serious concern. Okay. All right. So um, treatment for bronchiolitis obliterans um, has been best studied both in, in, in stem cell transplant and lung transplant recipients. So can you tell us a little bit about the approach, to, the treatment approach to those, uh, to those two patient populations? Unfortunately, there's no medications that cure bronchiolitis obliterans yet. In patients with BOSS after a stem cell transplant, the initial treatment almost always is a high-dose inhaled glucocorticoids. This is based on a small randomized trial that showed an improvement in FEV1 in patients with bronchiolitis obliterans after a stem cell transplant that were treated with inhaled budesonide and formoterol. There have also been small studies that have shown an FEV1 stabilization with the combination of fluticasone, azithromycin, and montelukast, or, uh, or what's referred to as FAM therapy. And, and this combination is also now widely used in patients with BOSS after stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. It is worth noting that azithromycin as monotherapy really hasn't been shown to be beneficial in BOSS after stem cell transplant. And there was this recent large study of azithromycin as prophylaxis for BOSS in patients who underwent stem cell transplant. And it was stopped early due to a higher rate of hematological relapses, relapses of the hematological malignancy in the azithromycin group and a higher rate of death, kind of surprisingly. So in patients with refractory bronchiolitis obliterans, despite FAM therapy, other treatment modalities that are used are extracorporeal photophoresis or systemic glucocorticoids and sometimes increased immunosuppression. And then lung transplant can be used in carefully selected patients as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of bronchiolitis obliterans after lung transplant, uh, success has been really limited in treatment of this. Azithromycin is probably one of the most well-established treatment options. Uh, There's a subset of patients that actually have an improvement in lung function with azithromycin, and the subset is now often called azithromycin-responsive allograft dysfunction and and maybe thought to be separate from true bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome. And prophylactic treatment with azithromycin also reduced the prevalence of bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome 
in patients with lung transplant kind of in contrast to the patients with stem cell transplants. We also sometimes use treatment with inhaled glucocorticoids and montelukast in patients with BOS after lung transplant and other things that are done is adjusting their maintenance immunosuppression. So in favor of tacrolimus over cyclosporin and mm -hmm. mycophenolate over azathioprine may have some small, um, small advantages. And then we really try not to treat with high dose corticosteroids for a long time due to the side effects and lack of efficacy. Mm -hmm. And really don't have a lot of data on salvage therapies for people who continue to progress like extracorporeal photoparesis or LM2zumab and ultimately repeat lung transplant. Yep. Can yep. Be yeah. I find it so interesting that there's a, you know, there's a pretty stark difference uh, in, in the utility of macrolides between the two transplant groups. Any hypotheses about why that is? That's a great question. Uh, we certainly don't fully understand the reasons behind that difference. One possibility is that the pathobiology is really quite different between these two transplant groups. And you know, another possibility is that the response to azithromycin between the groups really isn't as different as it seems. Uh, so that the randomized trial in lung transplant that evaluated azithromycin for the prevention of BOS was really quite small. So that, right. that really only had 80 patients in total, 40 in each group. Um, so those results still do need to be interpreted with caution. And, and then in terms of treatment of BOS, you know, that subset of patients after lung transplant who really respond to azithromycin are probably a different phenotype and, and not don't truly have bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome. So to maybe the responses aren't as different as it currently seems with the study. So um, what are the supportive treatment measures would you recommend for BOS then? I think it's really important to treat any coexisting infection or colonization. Um, you know, this it could, infection or colonization could really lead to ongoing injury. Uh, it's important to maximize treatment of GERD and really try and minimize possible aspiration. And then uh, in general, remove exposures that could be causing harm and, and remember basic things like pulmonary rehab and optimizing nutrition and then trying to treat underlying causes. So for connective tissue disease related bronchiolitis obliterans really consider immunosuppression. Um, the rationale for immunosuppression is pretty sparse for other indications besides connective tissue disease related bronchiolitis obliterans, but other underlying causes that can be identified, we should try and treat. Thank you. So I wanted to move now to the, to the other, uh, I guess, five other primary bronchiolar disorders. Um, and we'll st let's start with follicular bronchiolitis. Uh, so again, <laughs> how is it different from proliferative and constrictive bronchiolitis? And in what conditions do, does, does follicular bronchi bronchiolitis become most evident? <laughs> so in follicular bronchiolitis, the bronchiolar lumen is is either obliterated or narrowed by these hyperplastic lymphoid follicles, as opposed to in proliferative bronchiolitis, where the lumen is obliterated by these plugs of myofibroblastic tissue, and as opposed to constrictive bronchiolitis, which is really characterized by this subepithelial scarring. Um, so follicular bronchiolitis falls along a spectrum of reactive pulmonary lymphoid disorders uh, that's probably related to polyclonal lymphoid expansion from repetitive antigen stimulation. It is associated with conditions that stimulate the immune system. So autoimmune disorders like Sjogren's, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus, 
or immunodeficiency syndromes like common variable immune deficiency and HIV or, or infections. The pathologic finding of follicular bronchiolitis could also be seen in airway inflammatory diseases like cystic fibrosis or non-CF bronchiectasis or asthma. Okay. And treatment is usually directed at the underlying condition. So proliferative bronchiolitis equals organized pneumonia, constrictive bronchiolitis equals bronchiolitis obliterans, and, and follicular bronchiolitis is really uh, focused on polyclonal lymphoid expansion and associated with, with those, again, autoimmune diseases and immunodeficiency syndromes that you talked about. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so in terms of the treatment of uh, follicular bronchiolitis, again, um, you know, obviously in, in treating the underlying Sjogren's syndrome, treating, you know, CVID, et cetera, are there any other nonspecific, or I shouldn't say nonspecific, but other general treatments like rituximab or, or you know, other lymphocyte depleting drugs like azathioprine or, or uh, mycophenolate mofetil? That's a good question. Usually rituximab um, has been more only studied in the setting of common variable immune deficiency associated okay. with follicular bronchiolitis. So in the absence of, of any underlying condition, uh, the only medication on literature review that we saw was azithromycin that's been used. Okay. All right. Now let's move on to the, se the next condition, which is respiratory bronchiolitis. So take it away. <laughs> <laughs> so respiratory bronchiolitis is one of, is the most common form of bronchiolitis, uh, primarily caused by cigarette smoking and pathologically characterized by the accumulation of these finely pigmented macrophages within the lumen of the respiratory bronchiole. Usually, people with respiratory bronchiolitis are asymptomatic, and in cases where clinical symptoms, which are usually cough and dyspnea, are present, uh, respiratory bronchiolitis-associated interstitial lung disease, or, or RBILD, is diagnosed. It is important to remember that just because there are areas of respiratory bronchiolitis on surgical lung biopsy uh, doesn't necessarily secure a diagnosis of RBILD because respiratory bronchiolitis is so common. Mm -hmm. And features of respiratory bronchiolitis can also coexist with other forms of lung disease. So it's just important to make sure we're really reviewing clinical and radiological data as well. And the primary therapy is smoking cessation. And, and then there's a very interesting entity of diffuse panbronchiolitis. So, so just summarize that for us as well. Diffuse panbronchiolitis is a really rare syndrome that's characterized by bronchiolar inflammation, and chronic sinusitis that mainly occurs in middle-aged Japanese adults, the majority of whom are non-smokers and really have no significant inhalational exposure history. Um, usually these patients have a large daily sputum volume. On pathology, there is, they kind of uniquely have the accumulation of foamy macrophages in the alveolar interstitium. And the disease can really cause progressive respiratory dysfunction and bronchiectasis if untreated. But the prognosis has dramatically improved with low-dose chronic macrolide therapy. So this is a condition that I've, I've given my work in bronchiectasis. Uh, um, I've, I've discussed and, and, and seen and discussed with the case series. I mean, you know, this really is a condition of relentlessly progressing obstruction with the ultimate development of of, of bronchiectasis, pseudomonas infection, you know, really advanced, advanced airways disease. And, you know, the use of, the use of, uh, of macrolide antibiotics 
was really described by a colleague in, in Hong Kong who noticed that there's a lot of self-prescribing of macrolides among people from Hong Kong and that people who took um, azithromycin or erythromycin seemed to have amelioration of both their symptoms and ultimately of their function. So not unusually, it was a clinical uh, observation by an astute clinician that actually changed the face of, uh, of an entire disease state, relatively limited disease state, but it's really a, wow. a fascinating story um, that, that, uh, that, uh, that really I think is sort of a classic um, you know, approach where, again, clinical observation leads to characterization and leads to treatment. So it's really a very, very interesting story. Um, all right, how about diffuse aspiration bronchiolitis? And, and I got to tell you, I, again, given my work in bronchiectasis, you know, I've tried to make sometimes uh, unsuccessfully, you know, clinical association between acid aspiration and certainly bronchiectasis, but there, there are obviously pathologic steps or pathogenic steps before that. So tell us about diffuse aspiration bronchiolitis. So this is chronic inflammation, inflammation of the bronchioles caused by recurrent aspiration of foreign particles. And usually um, should really be considered in patients who are at risk for aspiration, mm -hmm. either oral pharyngeal dysphagia or esophageal dysmotility or, or gastroesophageal reflux disease. And um, looking for ancillary findings suggestive of aspiration on imaging can be really helpful, such as seeing endobronchial debris or esophageal mm -hmm. dilatation. And, and certainly, uh, you know, on bronchoscopy, we've seen, you know, foreign particles and, um, and foreign body granulomas um, in, 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 in a number of these patients as well. So I'm, I'm, I think, you know, this is one that remains to be, I think, better described. And I think uh, hopefully will spur some greater collaboration, collaboration with, our, with our GI colleagues. But, but this is something that I, you know, I, I think I see a lot in clinical practice. So I look forward to sort of uh, uh, a more extensive description of, of this condition and, and sort of long-term, um, you know, long-term natural history. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and finally, um, how about acute bronchiolitis? Acute bronchiolitis is mostly seen in children and, and infants and um, is characterized by wheezing and dyspnea, usually in the setting of an upper respiratory tract infection symptoms concurrent symptoms of a respiratory infection. It remains one of the leading causes of hospitalization in infants and young children and is usually due to viral or non-viral pathogens. So not something we're going to see as, uh, as adult pulmonologists, uh, but certainly uh, many of our colleagues uh, in the pediatric world that have a lot of experience with, uh, with acute bronchiolitis. So that's great. Um, any, other, any other comments you wanted to make about, about any, of those, any of those disorders, Aparna? No, I don't think so. Okay. So I want to get back to this, you know, this issue about the macrolides. And, and uh, as you know, you know, macrolides have very potent anti-inflammatory and, and immunomodulatory effects across the wide spectrum of diseases of the airway. So what is the role of macrolides in the treatment of non-transplant related bronchiolar disorders? Um, where do you think they fit? Are they first line? When do you use it? When do you avoid it? Can you, can you tell us your, your take on the literature? So we, we talked about how it was the, really the treatment of choice in diffuse panbronchiolitis. And, um, and then there's some, there's certainly some case series of sporadic bronchiolitis obliterans, non-transplant related with good long-term outcomes with macrolide therapy. And certainly it, it seemed like their outcomes were just as good as the, those who got immunosuppression without any underlying other etiology or other reason to get immunosuppression. Macrolides, 
have, they've also been reported to stabilize lung function and follicular bronchiolitis that, without any other identified cause. And so I, I think it is, I think they certainly have a role in non-transplant related bronchiolar disorders. And the question of when to avoid them, I think is a really important one. Um, really making sure we look hard for infection or, or any non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection and making sure we're not doing more harm than good macrolide therapy is important. And, um, and, and it's not clear that they have a role in, in diffuse aspiration bronchiolitis either, where there's this kind of persistent ongoing injury and so making sure we think closely about that. But, but I think macrolide therapy is definitely something we have to learn more about moving forward. Sure. Uh, and I'm glad you brought up the, the idea or the issue of non-tuberculous mycobacterium and, and being disciplined to, to rule that out in the appropriate clinical circumstances. Because certainly if you look, obviously, at the HRCT scan findings that you mentioned before, bronchial wall thickening and central lobular nodules and air trapping, that can certainly be seen very commonly uh, in patients with, with, with pulmonary non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is uh, an important consideration when you're committing somebody to uh, to a to a long-term you know monotherapy with with the macrolide so thanks for bringing that up um, um, so in summary Aparna, what are the main take-home points uh, for our clinician colleagues uh, from the work that uh, that you and your colleagues have done bronchial abnormalities they're common and they mostly occur in the context of processes affecting either the more proximal airways or the more distal parenchyma but in terms of primary bronchiolar disorders, a high index of suspicion is important to diagnose them and, and really keeping in mind predisposing factors such as inhalational exposures and connective tissue disease or a lung transplant. Uh, high resolution chest CT with inspiratory and expiratory imaging is the most sensitive non-invasive diagnostic test. And, and when combined with the careful history can really help diagnose patients without invasive biopsies. Um, and then the management strategies include maximizing treatment of coexisting infection or treating GERD, treating aspiration, and removing exposures, as well as then treating underlying conditions. Any, any other last thoughts or comments? So I, I think it's a really interesting area that's with exciting ongoing research and, and the importance of bronchiolar disorders in general, I think, are getting, is being increasingly recognized. So it's definitely something that we will continue to learn more about. Yeah, and, and I, think, uh, I think you and your colleagues did a really nice job um, in, a, in, a, in a relatively concise uh, review, you know, covering this topic. I mean, it certainly helped me <laughs> review the nomenclature and, and the classification, and I, and I found it uh, quite invaluable. So, again, I'd like to thank you very much for participating uh, in our podcast and for our audience, I hope that you enjoyed this discussion about the diagnosis and treatment of primary bronchiolar disorders uh, as much as I have. So until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of ATS. Thank you for listening. Bye.